Section 120 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 120. Sundays of a Bourgeois, Part 1. Monsieur Patissot, born in Paris, after having failed in his examinations at the Collège Henri IV, like many others, had entered the government service through the influence of one of his aunts, who kept a tobacco store where the head of one of the departments bought his provisions. He advanced very slowly, and would, perhaps, have died a fourth-class clerk without the aid of kindly providence, which sometimes watches over our destiny. He is today fifty-two years old, and it is only at this age that he is beginning to explore, as a tourist, all that part of France which lies between the fortifications and the provinces. The story of this advance might be useful to many employees, just as the tale of his excursions may be of value to many Parisians, who will take them as a model for their own outings, and will thus, through his example, avoid certain mishaps which occurred to him. In 1854 he only enjoyed a salary of 1,800 francs. Through a peculiar trait of his character he was unpopular with all his superiors, who let him languish in the eternal and hopeless expectation of the clerk's ideal, an increase in salary. Nevertheless he worked, but he did not know how to make himself appreciated. He had too much self-respect, he claimed. His self-respect consisted in never bowing to his superiors in a low and servile manner, as did, according to him, certain of his colleagues, whom he would not mention. He added that his frankness embarrassed many people, for, like all the rest, he protested against injustice and the favoritism shown to persons entirely foreign to the bureaucracy, but his indignant voice never passed beyond the little cage where he worked. First as a government clerk, then as a Frenchman, and finally as a man who believed in order he would adhere to whatever government was established, having an unbounded reverence for authority, except for that of his chiefs. Each time that he got the chance, he would place himself where he could see the emperor pass, in order to have the honor of taking his hat off to him, and he would go away puffed up with pride at having bowed to the head of the state. From his habit of observing the sovereign, he did as many others do. He imitated the way he trimmed his beard or arranged his hair, the cut of his clothes, his walk, his mannerisms. Indeed, how many men in each country seemed to be the living images of the head of the government. Perhaps he vaguely resembled Napoleon III, but his hair was black, therefore he dyed it and then the likeness was complete, and when he met another gentleman in the street, also imitating the imperial countenance, he was jealous and looked at him disdainfully. This need of imitation soon became his hobby, and, having heard an usher at the Tuileries imitate the voice of the emperor, he also acquired the same intonations and studied slowness. He thus became so much like his model that they might easily have been mistaken for each other, and certain high dignitaries were heard to remark that they found it unseemly and even vulgar. The matter was mentioned to the prime minister, who ordered that the employee should appear before him, but at the sight of him he began to laugh, and repeated two or three times, That's funny, really funny. This was repeated, and the following day Patissot's immediate superior recommended that his subordinate receive an increase of salary of three hundred francs. He received it immediately. From that time on his promotions came regularly, thanks to his ape-like faculty of imitation. The presentiment that some high honor might come to him some day caused his chiefs to speak to him with deference. When the Republic was proclaimed, it was a disaster for him. He felt lost, done for, and, losing his head, he stopped dyeing his hair, shaved his face clean, and had his hair cut short, thus acquiring a paternal and benevolent expression which could not compromise him in any way. Then his chiefs took revenge for the long time during which he had imposed upon them, and, having all turned Republican through an interest of self-preservation, they cut down his salary and delayed his promotion. He too changed his opinions but the Republic not being a palpable and living person whom one can resemble, and the President succeeding each other with rapidity, he found himself plunged in the greatest embarrassment, in terrible distress, 
and after an unsuccessful imitation of his last ideal monsieur Thier, he felt a check put on all his attempts at imitation he needed a new manifestation of personality he searched for a long time then one morning he arrived at the office wearing a new hat which had on the side a small red white and blue rosette his colleagues were astounded they laughed all that day the next day all the week all the month but the seriousness of his demeanour at last disconcerted them and once more his superiors became anxious what mystery could be hidden under this sign was it a simple manifestation of patriotism or an affirmation of his allegiance to the republic or perhaps the badge of some powerful association but to wear it so persistently he must surely have some powerful and hidden protection it would be well to be on one's guard especially as he received all pleasantries with unruffled calmness after that he was treated with respect and his sham courage saved him he was appointed head clerk on the first of january eighteen eighty his whole life had been spent indoors he hated noise and bustle and because of his love of rest and quiet he had remained a bachelor he spent his sundays reading tales of adventure and ruling guidelines which he afterward offered to his colleagues in his whole existence he had only taken three vacations of a week each when he was changing his quarters but sometimes on a holiday he would leave by an excursion train for dieppe or Havre in order to celebrate his mind by the inspiring sight of the sea he was full of that common sense which borders on stupidity for a long time he had been living quietly with economy temperate through prudence chased by temperament when suddenly he was assailed by a terrible apprehension one evening in the street he suddenly felt an attack of dizziness which made him fear a stroke he hastened to a physician and for five francs obtained the following prescription monsieur x fifty-five years old bachelor clerk full-bodied danger of apoplexy cold water applications moderate nourishment plenty of exercise montelier m d patisot was greatly distressed and for a whole month in his office he kept a wet towel wrapped around his head like a turban while the water continually dripped on his work which he would have to do over again every once in a while he would read the prescription over probably in the hope of finding some hidden meaning of penetrating into the secret thought of the physician and also of discovering some forms of exercise which might perhaps make him immune from apoplexy then he consulted his friend showing them the fateful paper one advised boxing he immediately hunted up an instructor and on the first day he received a punch in the nose which immediately took away all his ambition in this direction single stick made him gasp for breath and he grew so stiff from fencing that for two days and two nights he could not get any sleep then a bright idea struck him it was to walk every sunday to some suburb of paris and even to certain places in the capital which he did not know for a whole week his mind was occupied with thoughts of the equipment which you need for these excursions and on sunday the thirtieth of may he began his preparations after reading all the extraordinary advertisements which poor blind and halt beggars distribute on street corners he began to visit the stores with the intention of looking about him only and of buying later on first of all he visited a so-called american shoe store where heavy travelling shoes were shown him the clerk brought out a kind of iron-clad contrivance studded with spikes like a harrow which he claimed to be made from rocky mountain bison skin he was so carried away with them that he would willingly have bought two pair but one was sufficient he carried them away under his arm which soon became numb from the weight he next invested in a pair of corduroy trousers such as carpenters wear and a pair of oiled canvas leggings then he needed a knapsack for his provisions a telescope so as to recognize villages perched on the slope of distant hills and finally a government survey map to enable him to find his way without asking the peasants toiling in the fields lastly in order more comfortably to stand the heat he decided to purchase a light alpaca jacket offered by the famous fern of ramineau according to their advertisement for the modest sum of six francs and fifty centimes he went to this store and was welcomed by a distinguished-looking young man with a marvellous head of hair 
nails as pink as those of a lady and a pleasant smile he showed him the garment it did not correspond with the glowing style of the advertisement then patissot hesitatingly asked well monsieur will it wear well the young man turned his eyes away in well-feigned embarrassment like an honest man who does not wish to deceive a customer and lowering his eyes he said in a hesitating manner dear me monsieur you understand that for six francs fifty we cannot turn out an article like this for instance and he showed him a much finer jacket than the first one patissot examined it and asked the price twelve francs fifty and it was very tempting but before deciding he once more questioned the big young man who was observing him attentively is it that good do you guarantee it oh certainly monsieur it is quite good but of course you must not get it wet yes it's really quite good but you understand that there are goods and goods it's excellent for the price twelve francs fifty just think why that's nothing at all naturally a twenty-five franc coat is much better for twenty-five francs you get a superior quality as strong as linen and which wears even better if it gets wet a little ironing will fix it right up the color never fades and it does not turn red in the sunlight it is the warmest and lightest material out he unfolded his wares holding them up shaking them crumpling and stretching them in order to show the excellent quality of the cloth he talked on convincingly dispelling all hesitation by words and gesture patissot was convinced he brought the coat the peasant salesman still talking tied up the bundle and continued praising the value of the purchase when it was paid for he was suddenly silent he bowed with a superior air and holding the door open he watched his customer disappear both arms filled with bundles and vainly trying to reach his hat to bow monsieur patissot returned home and carefully studied the map he wished to try on his shoes which were more like skates than shoes owing to the spikes he slipped and fell promising himself to be more careful in the future then he spread out all his purchases on a chair and looked at them for a long time he went to sleep with this thought isn't it strange that i didn't think before of taking an excursion to the country during the whole week patissot worked without ambition he was dreaming of the outing which he had planned for the following sunday and he was seized by a sudden longing for the country a desire of growing tender over nature this thirst for rustic scenes which overwhelms parisians in springtime only one person gave him any attention it was a silent old copying clerk named boivon nicknamed boileau he himself lived in the country and had a little garden which he cultivated carefully his needs were small and he was perfectly happy so they said patissot was now able to understand his tastes and the similarity of their ideals and made them immediately fast friends old man boivon said to him do i like fishing monsieur why it's the delight of my life then patissot questioned him with deep interest boivon named all the fish who frolicked under this dirty water and patissot thought he could see them boivon told about the different hooks baits spots and times suitable for each kind and patissot felt himself more like a fisherman than boivon himself they decided that the following sunday they would meet for the opening of the season for the edification of patissot who was delighted to have found such an experienced instructor the day before the one when he was for the first time in his life to throw a hook into a river monsieur patissot bought for eighty centimes how to become a perfect fisherman in this work he learned many useful things but he was especially impressed by the style and he retained the following passage in a word if you wish without books without rules to fish successfully to the left or to the right up or down stream in the masterly manner that halts at no difficulty then fish before during and after a storm when the clouds break and the sky is streaked with lightning when the earth shakes with the grumbling thunder it is then that either through hunger or terror all the fish forget their habits in a turbulent flight in this confusion follow or neglect all favorable signs and just go on fishing you will march to victory in order to catch fish of all sizes he bought three well-perfected poles 
made to be used as a cane in the city, which, on the river, could be transformed into a fishing rod by a simple jerk. He bought some number fifteen hooks for gudgeon, number twelve for bream, and with his number seven he expected to fill his basket with carp. He bought no earthworms, because he was sure of finding them everywhere, but he laid in a provision of sandworms. He had a jar full of them, and in the evening he watched them with interest. The hideous creatures swarmed in their bath of bran as they do in putrid meat. Patisot wished to practice baiting his hook. He took up one with disgust, but he had hardly placed the curved steel point against it when it split open. Twenty times he repeated this without success, and he might have continued all night had he not feared to exhaust his supply of vermin. He left by the first train. The station was full of people equipped with fishing lines. Some, like Patisot's, looked like simple bamboo canes. Others, in one piece, pointed their slender ends to the skies. They looked like a forest of slender sticks, which mingled and clashed like swords or swayed like masts over an ocean of broad-brimmed straw hats. When the train started, fishing rods could be seen sticking out of all the windows and doors, giving to the train the appearance of a huge, bristly caterpillar winding through the fields. Everyone got off at Courbevoie and rushed for the stage for Bizon. A crowd of fishermen crowded on top of the coach, holding their rods in their hands, giving the vehicle the appearance of a porcupine. All along the road, men were traveling in the same direction as though on a pilgrimage to an unknown Jerusalem. They were all carrying those long, slender sticks resembling those carried by the faithful returning to Palestine. A tin box on a strap was fastened to their backs. They were in a hurry. At Bazan, the river appeared. People were lined along both banks, men in frock coats, others in duck suits, others in blouses. Women, children, and even young girls of marriageable age, all were fishing. Patisot started for the dam where his friend Boivan was waiting for him. The latter greeted him rather coolly. He had just made the acquaintance of a big fat man of about fifty, who seemed very strong and whose skin was tanned. All three hired a big boat and lay off almost under the fall of the dam, where the fish are most plentiful. Boivan was immediately ready. He baited his line and threw it out, and then sat motionless, watching the little float with extraordinary concentration. From time to time he would jerk his line out of the water and cast it farther out. The fat gentleman threw out his well-baited hooks, put his line down beside him, filled his pipe, lit it, crossed his arms, and, without another glance at the cork, he watched the water flow by. Patisot once again began trying to stick sandworms on his hooks. After about five minutes of this occupation, he called to Boivan, "'Monsieur Boivan, would you be so kind as to help me put these creatures on my hook? Try as I will, I can't seem to succeed.' Boivan raised his head. "'Please don't disturb me, Monsieur Patisot, we are not here for pleasure.' However, he baited the line, which Patisot then threw out, carefully imitating all the motions of his friend. The boat was tossing wildly, shaken by the waves, and spun round like a top by the current, although anchored at both ends. Patisot, absorbed in the sport, felt a kind of vague uneasiness. He was uncomfortably heavy and somewhat dizzy. They caught nothing. Little Boivan, very nervous, was gesticulating and shaking his head in despair. Patisot was as sad as though some disaster had overtaken him. The fat gentleman alone, still motionless, was quietly smoking without paying any attention to his line. At last, Padso, disgusted, turned toward him and said in a mournful voice, "'They're not biting, are they?' He quietly replied, "'Of course not.' Padso, surprised, looked at him. "'Do you ever catch many?' "'Never.' "'What? Never?' The fat man, still smoking like a factory chimney, let out the following words, which completely upset his neighbor. "'It would bother me a lot if they did bite.' I don't come here to fish. I come because I'm very comfortable here. I get shaken up as though I were at sea. If I take a line along, it's only to do as others do. Monsieur Patisot, on the other hand, did not feel at all well. His discomfort, at first vague, kept increasing, and finally took on a definite form. 
he felt indeed as though he were being tossed by the sea and he was suffering from seasickness after the first attack had calmed down he proposed leaving but boivin grew so furious that they almost came to blows the fat man moved by pity rowed the boat back and as soon as pagisot had recovered from his seasickness they bethought themselves of luncheon two restaurants presented themselves one of them very small looked like a beer garden and was patronized by the poorer fishermen the other one which bore the imposing name of linden cottage looked like a middle-class residence and was frequented by the aristocracy of the rod the two owners born enemies watched each other with hatred across a large field which separated them and where the white house of the dam keeper and of the inspector of the life-saving department stood out against the green grass moreover these two officials disagreed one of them upholding the beer garden and the other one defending the elms and the internal feuds which arose in these three houses reproduced the whole history of mankind boivin who knew the beer garden wished to go there exclaiming the food is very good and it isn't expensive you'll see anyhow monsieur patisot you needn't expect me to get tipsy the way you did last sunday my wife was furious you'll know and she has sworn never to forgive you the fat gentleman declared that he would only eat at the elms because it was an excellent place and the cooking was as good as the best restaurants in paris do as you wish declared boivin i am going where i am accustomed to go he left patisot displeased at his friend's actions followed the fat gentleman they ate together exchanged ideas discussed opinions and found that they were made for each other after the meal everyone started to fish again but the two new friends left together following along the banks they stopped near the railroad bridge and still talking they threw their lines in the water the fish still refused to bite but patisot was now making the best of it a family was approaching the father whose whiskers stamped him as a judge was holding an extraordinarily long rod three boys of different sizes were carrying poles of different lengths according to age and the mother who was very stout gracefully maneuvered a charming rod with a ribbon tied to the handle the father bowed and asked is this spot good gentlemen patisot was going to speak when his friend answered fine the whole family smiled and settled down beside the fisherman then patisot was seized with a wild desire to catch a fish just one any kind any size in order to win the consideration of these people so he began to handle his rod as he had seen boivin do in the morning he would let the cork follow the current to the end of the line jerk the hooks out of the water make them describe a large circle in the air and throw them out again a little higher up he had even as he thought caught the knack of doing this movement gracefully he had just jerked his line out rapidly when he felt it caught on something behind him he tugged and a scream burst from behind him he perceived caught on one of his hooks and describing in the air a curve like a meteor a magnificent hat which he placed right in the middle of the river he turned around bewildered dropping his pole which followed the hat down the stream and while the fat gentleman his new friend lay on his back and roared with laughter that lady hatless and astounded choked with anger her husband was outraged and demanded the price of the hat and patisot paid three times its value then the family departed in a very dignified manner patisot took another rod and until nightfall he gave baths to sandworms his neighbor was sleeping peacefully on the grass toward seven in the evening he awoke let's go away from here he said then patisot withdrew his line gave a cry and sat down hard from astonishment at the end of the string was a tiny little fish when they looked at him more closely they found that he had been hooked through the stomach the hook had caught him as it was being drawn out of the water patisot was filled with a boundless triumphant joy he wished to have the fish fried for himself alone during the dinner the friends grew still more intimate he learned that the fat gentleman had lived at argentuil and had been sailing boats for thirty years without losing interest in the sport he accepted to take luncheon with him the following sunday and to take a sail in his friend's clipper plongeon he became so interested in the conversation that he forgot all about his catch he did not remember it until after the coffee and he demanded that it be brought him 
It was alone in the middle of the platter, and looked like a yellow, twisted match, but he ate it with pride and relish, and at night on the omnibus he told his neighbors that he had caught fourteen pounds of fish during the day. Monsieur Patissot had promised his friend, the boating man, that he would spend the following Sunday with him. An unforeseen occurrence changed his plan. One evening on the boulevard he met one of his cousins, whom he saw but very seldom. He was a pleasant journalist, well-received in all classes of society, who offered to show Patissot many interesting things. "'What are you going to do next Sunday?' "'I'm going boating at Argentville.' "'Come on, boating is an awful bore. There's no variety to it. Listen, I'll take you along with me. I'll introduce you to two celebrities. We will visit the homes of two artists.' "'But I have been ordered to go into the country.' "'That's just where we'll go. On the way, we'll call on Maisonnier at his place in Poissy. Then we'll walk over to Medan, where Zola lives.' I have been commissioned to obtain his next novel for our newspaper. Patissot, wild with joy, accepted the invitation. He even bought a frock coat, as his own was much too worn to make a good appearance. He was terribly afraid of saying something foolish either to the artist or to the man of letters, as do people who speak of an art which they have never professed. He mentioned his fears to his cousin, who laughed and answered, Pshaw! Just pay them compliments, nothing but compliments, always compliments. In that way, if you say anything foolish, it will be overlooked. Do you know Miss Sonnier's paintings? I should say I do. Have you read the Rougon McCart series? From first to last. That's enough. Mention a painting from time to time, speak of a novel here and there, and add, Superb, extraordinary, delightful technique, wonderfully powerful. In that way you can always get along. I know that those two are very blasé about everything, but admiration always pleases an artist. Sunday morning they left for Poissy. Just a few steps from the station, at the end of the church square, they found Miss Sonnier's property. After passing through a low door painted red, which led into a beautiful alley of vines, the journalist stopped, and, turning toward his companion, asked, "'What is your idea of Missonnier?' Petissot hesitated. At last he decided. A little man, well-groomed, clean-shaven, a soldierly appearance. The other smiled. "'All right, come along.' A quaint building in the form of a chalet appeared to the left, and to the right side, almost opposite, was the main house. It was a strange-looking building, where there was a mixture of everything— a mingling of Gothic fortress, manor, villa, hut, residence, cathedral, mosque, pyramid, a weird combination of Eastern and Western architecture. The style was complicated enough to set a classical architect crazy, and yet there was something whimsical and pretty about it. It had been invented and built under the direction of the artist. They went in, a collection of trunks encumbered a little parlor. A man appeared dressed in a jumper. The striking thing about him was his beard. He bowed to the journalist and said, "'My dear sir, I hope that you will excuse me. "'I only returned yesterday, and everything is all upset here. "'Please be seated.' "'The other refused, excusing himself. "'My dear master, I only dropped in to pay my respects while passing by.' "'Patissot, very much embarrassed, was bowing at every word of his friends, "'as though moving automatically, and he murmured, stammering, "'What a su su superb property!' "'The artist, flattered, smiled and suggested visiting it. "'He led them first to a little pavilion of feudal aspect "'where his former studio was.' Then they crossed a parlor, a dining room, a vestibule full of beautiful works of art, a beautiful Beauvais, Gobelin, and Flanders tapestries. But the strange external luxury of ornamentation became, inside, a revel of immense stairways. A magnificent grand stairway, a secret stairway in one tower, a servant's stairway in another, stairways everywhere. Patissot, by chance, opened a door and stepped back astonished. It was a veritable temple, this place of which respectable people only mention the name in English, an original and charming sanctuary in exquisite taste, fitted up like a pagoda, and the decoration of which must certainly have caused a great effort. 
they next visited the park which was complex varied with winding paths and full of old trees but the journalist insisted on leaving and with many thanks he took leave of the master as they left they met a gardener patisseau asked him has monsieur Maisonnier owned this place for a long time the man answered oh monsieur that needs explaining i guess he bought the grounds in eighteen forty six but as for the house he has already torn down and rebuilt that five or six times it must have cost him at least two millions as patisseau left he was seized with an immense respect for the man not on account of his success glory or talent but for putting so much money into a whim because the bourgeois deprive themselves of all pleasure in order to hoard money after crossing poissy they struck out on foot along the road to medan the road first followed the seine which is dotted with charming islands at this place then they went up the hill and crossed the pretty village of vilaine went down a little and finally reached the neighborhood inhabited by the author of the rougon mccart series a pretty old church with two towers appeared on the left they walked along a short distance and a passing farmer directed them to the writer's dwelling before entering they examined the house a large building square and new very high seemed as in the fable of the mountain and the mouse to give birth to a tiny white house which nestled near it this house was the original dwelling and had been built by the former owner the tower had been erected by zola they rang the bell an enormous dog a cross between a saint bernard and a newfoundland began to howl so terribly that patisseau felt a vague desire to retrace his steps but a servant ran forward calmed bertrand opened the door and took the journalist's card in order to carry it to his master i hope that he will receive us murmured patisseau it would be too bad if we had come all this distance not to see him his companion smiled and answered never fear i have a plan for getting in but the servant who had returned simply asked them to follow him they entered the new building and patisseau who was quite enthusiastic was panting as he climbed a stairway of ancient style which led to the second story at the same time he was trying to picture to himself this man whose glorious name echoes at present in all corners of the earth amid the exasperated hatred of some the real or feigned indignation of society the envious scorn of several of his colleagues the respect of a mass of readers and the frenzied admiration of a great number he expected to see a kind of bearded giant of awe-inspiring aspect with a thundering voice and an appearance little prepossessing at first the door opened on a room of uncommonly large dimensions broad and high lighted by an enormous window looking out over the valley old tapestries covered the walls on the left a monumental fireplace flanked by two stone men could have burned a century-old oak in one day an immense table littered with books papers and magazines stood in the middle of this apartment so vast and grand that it first engrossed the eye and the attention was only afterward drawn to the man stretched out when they entered on an oriental divan where twenty persons could have slept he took a few steps toward them bowed motioned to two seats and turned back to his divan where he sat with one leg drawn under him a book lay open beside him and in his right hand he held an ivory paper cutter at the end of which he observed from time to time with one eye closing the other with the persistency of a near-sighted person while the journalist explained the purpose of the visit and the writer listened to him without yet answering at times staring at him fixedly patisseau more and more embarrassed was observing this celebrity hardly forty he was of medium height fairly stout and with a good-natured look his head very similar to those found in many italian paintings of the sixteenth century without being beautiful in the plastic sense of the word gave an impression of great strength of character power and intelligence short hair stood up straight on the high well-developed forehead a straight nose stopped short as if cut off suddenly above the upper lip which was covered with a black moustache over the whole chin was a closely cropped beard the dark often ironical look was piercing one felt that behind it there was a mind always actively at work observing people interpreting words analyzing gestures uncovering the heart 
this strong round head was appropriate to the name quick and short with the bounding resonance of the two vowels when the journalist had fully explained his proposition the writer answered him that he did not wish to make any definite arrangement that he would however think the matter over that his plans were not yet sufficiently defined then he stopped it was a dismissal and the two men a little confused arose a desire seized patisseau he wished this well-known person to say something to him anything some word which he could repeat to his colleagues and growing bold he stammered oh monsieur if you knew how i appreciate your works the other bowed but answered nothing patisseau became very bold and continued it is a great honour for me to speak to you to-day the writer once more bowed but with a stiff and impatient look patisseau noticed it and completely losing his head he added as he retreated what a su superb property then in the heart of the man of letters the landowner awoke and smiling he opened the window to show them the immense stretch of view an endless horizon broadened out on all sides giving a view of Triel, peace fontaine chanteloupe all the heights of holtree and the seine as far as the eye could see the two visitors delighted congratulated him and the house was open to them they saw everything down to the dainty kitchen whose walls and even ceilings were covered with porcelain tiles ornamented with blue designs which excited the wonder of the farmers how did you happen to buy this place asked the journalist the novelist explained that while looking for a cottage to hire for the summer he had found the little house which was for sale for several thousand francs a song almost nothing he immediately bought it but everything that you added must have cost you a good deal the writer smiled and answered yes quite a little the two men left the journalist taking patisseau by the arm was philosophizing in a low voice every general has his waterloo he said every balzac has his jardis and every living artist in the country feels like a landed proprietor they took the train at the station of Villain, and on the way home patisseau loudly mentioned the names of the famous painter and the great novelist as though they were his friends he even allowed people to think that he had taken luncheon with one and dinner with the other end of section one twenty recording by tatiana chichilla columbus ohio